Welcome to the New Territories podcast, where we have conversations about blockchain technology and its applications to policy, society, and more. I'm your host, Joyce Lai from Consensus. Hello, everyone. Um, this is part two of the Stablecoin series. Um, today, I'm at the offices of Latham and Watkins, and we have three partners from their office here. We have Steve Wink, Yvette Valdez, and Christian McDermott. Um, Steve Wink is a partner in the in the New York offices of Latham and Watkins. He's a member of the firm's corporate department and of the capital markets, financial regulatory investment funds, and mergers and acquisition practices. Um, Yvette is a partner also at the New York office. She is head of the U.S. derivatives regulatory practice. Um, is a member of the firm's financial institutions and fintech industry groups. And Christian is from London, so I'm very lucky to have been able to catch him here today. He is also a partner um, and is in the outsourcing and technology transactions practice um, in their London office. So welcome everyone. Thanks for being here. Nice to be here. Thanks for having us. Great. So today we're going to talk about stable coins. So let's level set and um, explain to the audience what is a stable coin? What does that term mean? Because we all know that terminology in this space is developing and it's very important. Well, I, I, think, I think it's really derived from the need to have a, a, you know, a stable, non-volatile uh, you know, currency, cryptocurrency. Uh, and you know, just like how the the dollar, the reason the dollar becomes the you know the the is the the currency of most commercial transactions in the world uh, is because it's real it's it's more stable than other uh, currencies generally. So the the idea here is to to create some sort of mechanism in the uh, in the token or coin that would maintain the stability, you know, and reduce volatility of the value. Right. And I think to get a little bit more granular, um, there's you can probably divide stable coins into two different types at this point. You've got asset-backed uh, stable coins. You've also got algorithmic stable coins. In the asset-backed world, they're backed by off-chain collateral or on-chain collateral, collateral like fiat currency commodities, off-chain ether or sorry, on-chain like ether and other cryptocurrencies, mm-hmm. um, and within those collateral pools, it could be pegged to just the dollar. Um, they could be soft pegs. They could be hard pegs. They could also effectively be IOUs to the collateral or not. And so there's various structures that I think we're certainly seeing with respect to asset-backed stable coins. And then the algorithmic stable coins um, effectively monitor the supply and demand mm-hmm. by smart contract and algorithms. And so there isn't really collateral backing it, if you will, in order to stabilize it. I see. Um, Do you agree with those definitions, Christian? Yes, absolutely, I do. Okay, great. Um, Since we have you here, Christian, and you're a privacy lawyer from the UK, would love to hear your thoughts on some of the privacy issues, although we learned that you pronounce it privacy. you know, looking at stable coins from the data privacy perspective, what are the key privacy issues that potential issuers of the stable coin and other people who use the stable coin need to consider when they design the actual stable coin and the system in which the stable coin will operate in? Yeah, sure. Um, 
And thanks for having me here. Um, I think this is a really interesting question because from, from my perspective at least, privacy law is one of the areas where actual day-to-day -day business practices are often most at odds with legal and regulatory expectations in this area. And I think that problem is only going to get worse when you add novel concepts like stable coins into the mix. So, so what are these problems? Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah, of course. Um, so, I mean, as, as you mentioned, I'm based in the UK. So coming at it, first of all, from a, a European perspective, um, and, and the UK is still part of uh, the European Union for the time being. Um, <laughs> Uh, but there are also some recent US developments that we should touch on as well. But So starting with, with the EU, um, most people may already be aware of the GDPR. And for anyone who's interested, GDPR stands for General Data Protection Regulation. Um, and it's regarded as one of the world's most far-reaching and advanced privacy regimes. Uh, the GDPR came into force on the 28th of May 2018. Um, it's applicable in all 28 EU member states, as well as the three EEA states of Norway, Liechtenstein and Iceland. Um, but then thinking in terms, of, in terms of scope and for your US listeners, um, the, in addition to companies that are operating in the European Union, the GDPR also applies to non-EU businesses, so that's you know, including US businesses if they either market their products to residents of the European Union or they monitor the behavior of residents of the European Union. So that means that the GDPR is something that, that can't be ignored even for businesses that are you know, majority US centric um, and especially given the level of fines that regulators can levy. So under the GDPR, um, monetary fines can be up to 20 million euro or um, in the case of an undertaking, up to 4% of the total global turnover for the preceding financial year, whichever of those two figures is higher. So we're talking about you know, big numbers, um, and also regulators um, are increasingly showing themselves to be willing to exercise these newfound um, fining powers that they've got, because we've seen a, a number of large, high-profile fines being announced in, in recent months. Um, and so at its core, the, the GDPR places obligations on so-called data controllers. And those are the, the entities that determine, and this is the kind of the, the, the legal speak here, but the entities that determine the purposes and means of the processing of personal data. Um, and it also, the GDPR also gives certain rights to so-called data subjects. So the, the two concepts, I think, to bear in mind are the data controllers and data subjects. And the data subjects are the natural persons to whom the personal data relates. Um, and the GDPR gives data subjects the power to enforce those rights against the data controllers. So far, so good. But anyone who's been following developments in this space will know that there's tensions emerging when it comes to applying the GDPR to distributed ledger technologies. Um, so much so that actually the European Parliament uh, commissioned a recent study on whether DLT is actually consistent at its core with European privacy law. So that was published in July this year, um, and the study identified two overarching factors that give rise to these tensions between DLT and GDPR. Firstly, the, the GDPR is based on this core assumption that in relation to each personal data point, there's at least one entity, that's the data controller that we talked about, against whom data subjects can enforce their rights. However, one of the features of DLT is often decentralization, um, which can make it very difficult then to identify which entities are the data controllers. Um, and this, this is not helped, this uh, uncertainty isn't helped by recent European case law, which has muddied the waters actually on which entities will qualify as a controller or a joint controller. Can I interrupt you for a yeah. second and ask you one question is, you know, 
before we get into who is the data controller, right? In the context of a stable coin, so let's say I uh, take a USDC and buy a one cup of coffee in it. Which part of that is the personal data? That's a great question. Um, so, so personal data is is any data that relates to or that can I be used to identify a living individual. And so it, it can be kind of innocuous things. So your name is personal data, your email address is personal data, your telephone number, your your address, all these things are personal data. And um, I think the, the thing that maybe confuses people quite often is they will say, well, if it's on a blockchain, if it's on a ledger, then it's going to be encrypted or if it's, it will be hashed. So actually, you know, if someone's just looking at it, they won't be able to tell um, that, it's, that it's me or they won't be able to read that data. But the way that European privacy law at least works is that even if data is encrypted or hashed, it's still likely that that data will constitute personal data because of the, you know, you have to look at the, who's got the key to unencrypt that data. But the key thing to bear in mind, I think, when you're thinking about personal data is that if it's encrypted or hashed, it can still be personal data for these purposes. Okay, thank you. Uh, not at all. So, um, yes, yeah, so, so we talked about the, the this, this kind of mismatch between decentralization of the LT mm -hmm. and then the, the assumption that there's going to be a core kind of controller always. And the other, um, I think the other tension um, is that the GDPR is, is also based on the assumption that data can be modified or erased in order to comply with legal requirements. And again, uh, this is difficult to reconcile with the, I think, the difficulty that's inherent in editing previous entries on a blockchain. The whole, the whole point is that you're, it's not necessarily impossible, but extremely difficult to do that. Um, and and again, th there's further legal uncertainty around about how this notion of erasure in the GDPR, which is also um, referred to as the right to be forgotten, there's uncertainty around about how that's supposed to be interpreted again. So you've got the combination of uncertainty and again this, this tension. Um, so that, the paper that the European Parliament published, um, it emphasizes you know, that what we talked about, that you even if your data is encrypted or hashed, then um, it's still going to be personal data for these purposes. And ultimately, the, the paper found uh, and this is quoting from the paper, it cannot be concluded in a generalized fashion that blockchains are either all compatible or incompatible with data protection law. Rather, each use of technology must be examined on its own merits to reach such a conclusion. So it's basically kind of sitting on the fence, but it's helpful in that it's not saying distributed ledger technology is fundamentally incompatible with privacy law, but it's saying you need to look in a case-by-case -case mm -hmm. basis. Um, and thinking about those who are involved in um, building these systems, it gives this kind of questionably useful advice, which is that uh, architects um, need to make sure that they design their respective use cases in a manner that allows compliance with European data protection law, which is a, a concept of privacy by design. Now, um, if you're thinking that's, that's easier said than done, then you'd be absolutely right. And, and I think to its credit, the paper also recognizes that there's this inherent difficulty in achieving compliance, especially given the lack of legal certainty that we talked about. Um, and so one of the things that the paper calls on is for additional regulatory guidance, not necessarily changing the law, but saying that the regulator should come out and give more guidance on how the law will apply in, in individual use cases. Um, and it also explore, it recommends that uh, regulators should explore things like certification mechanisms and industry codes of conduct that, that are being talked about in the context of technologies like the cloud um, as, as a way of potentially squaring the circle on this kind of stuff. Um, so that's that's a lot about Europe. Um, turning to the US um, for a moment. So the key development over here that I mean that I've been keeping track of from afar in, in the UK 
um, is the enactment of the California Consumer Privacy Act, and that's referred to as the CCPA for short. Um, and so that was that was first enacted in 2018. Um, it's important to bear in mind it's not enforced yet, but it will take effect on the 1st of January 2020. And earlier on this month in October, the California AG's office also published draft regulations under the CCPA for, for public comment. So we're getting more information around about what the content's going to be. And the idea behind the CCPA is to enhance privacy rights and consumer protection for residents of California. Um, and there are some notable parallels between the CCPA and the GDPR. Um, and those include, under the CCPA, new individual rights to data access and significantly for our purposes, as we talked about, um, data erasure rights. And also rights, um, new rights for individuals to opt out of so-called data selling. So given the parallels between the two regimes, I think it's, it's likely that California regulators and tech companies are going to encounter similar issues to those that I've just been talking about in Europe around about these inconsistencies between technology and, and the way that the law um, is, is structured. Another thing though that is worth bearing in mind is that um, there are actually significant differences also between the CCPA and the GDPR. And this is, even, this is even highlighted in a fact sheet that the, um, the AG's office published on the CCPA. Um, so unfortunately for Californian businesses that operate internationally, they're going to potentially have to take more than one regime into account when, when they're um, designing their solutions. And the other point um, to bear in mind is, um, as you guys in the US will be very aware, that um, this is a California-specific piece of legislation, right? Um, and it hasn't gone, you know, that hasn't gone unnoticed in the US business community. So um, on the 10th of September, earlier this year, CEOs from 51 companies from the Business Roundtable, which um, is a non-profit association uh, made up of CEOs of major US companies, so includes IBM, Amazon, Dell, and General Motors, they all signed a letter addressed to US congressional leaders, um, and they pointed out, and I'll quote from the letter, Consumers should not and cannot be expected to understand rules that may change depending on the state in which they reside, the state in which they're accessing the internet, and the state in which the company's operation is providing those resources or services. And they conclude um, their letter by urging Congress to act and create a comprehensive federal consumer data privacy law. So overall, I mean, I think um, it's very much a case of watch this space when it comes to privacy regulation in the US um, and also what it means for US-based stablecoins in the longer term. But I think there's there's learnings that can be taken from, from Europe. That's great. Thank you. No yeah, that is a very uh, comprehensive uh, overview of both the UK and, I guess, California here on, on the state side on the things you need to think of if you want to incorporate a stablecoin in something that you do as a, as a part of the bigger process, right? Um, so in a, a different perspective, um, I guess getting a little bit more granular on this structure of a stable coin itself, um, we do have Yvette here who's a commodities lawyer and also Steve who um, focuses on broker-dealer issues amongst other things. So I'd love to hear from the two of you when if someone wants to structure the actual stable coin um, from a commodities law perspective, what are some of the U.S. legal issues? Sure, I'll take a stab at that. Um, so just to define a little bit, when we say commodities law issues, we're talking about two things. One, mm -hmm. commodities and commodity interests. So just to kind of throw out some definitions out there, commodities 
and commodity interests, which would be derivatives and other swaps, are largely regulated and have regulatory oversight by the CFTC, the Commodity Futures Trading Commission. Um, and the Commodity Exchange Act is the statute that effectively implements the regulatory regime, if you will, and the statutory regime governing commodity interests. Commodities are everything except for onions and box office receipts that had very good lobbies when those definitions were, when that definition was being finalized, in particular when then it was further revised under Dodd-Frank in 2010. So what does that mean? That means that when the CFTC was looking at cryptocurrencies and trying to understand their regulatory oversight where their jurisdictional mandate would be uh, within crypto asset activities, very early on there were statements by the commissioners stating that cryptocurrencies, virtual currencies, which is the term they tend to use, are commodities. And then that was further confirmed through enforcement action um, and litigation. So we do know that cryptocurrencies, crypto assets, would all these types of digital assets would all be considered commodities because the definition is very broad. There are two things. One is the CFTC has enforcement authority over spot trading of commodities, and it has a very robust regulatory supervisory role with respect to commodity interests, which would be derivatives and swaps. So taking a stable coin, there's a couple of things that we need to think about. The first is the stable coin is a cryptocurrency. So the trading of that cryptocurrency in any way, shape, or form would be subject to enforcement authority by the CFTC. And that means that the CFTC polices against manipulation and fraud in the spot trading market. There are also additional rules that apply in the spot market that folks need to think about, which is if, crypto, if the stable coin, for instance, would be used, um, would be purchased on leverage, there are retail commodity leverage rules that apply, which effectively would regulate that leveraged purchase or margined purchase, financed purchase of the commodity as if it were a futures contract. So within the spot contract or the spot trading of a, a stable coin itself, just as any cryptocurrency, because frankly this analysis applies to any digital asset, there needs to be a consideration as to how it's being purchased, how it's being sold, whether or not there's financing involved. And to complicate matters a tiny bit, um, the CFTC several years ago e issued a proposed interpretation on what delivery actually means in the retail commodity leverage rule space. And so the CFTC um, has been thinking through when you've actually delivered that cryptocurrency, what does that look like? Is it when it's gone into the wallet and you possess full control? Can it actually be in a third party wallet and was that delivery to the purchaser? Um, can it be housed in a depository? How does that look? Because the rules around retail commodity leverage um, rules don't actually apply to cryptocurrencies. This is a new technology. Um, when these rules were passed, folks were thinking about you know, oil, warehousing, et cetera. 
when that interpretation is finalized, it will not only clarify what delivery means in the retail commodity leverage space, but there's also the concern that it will uh, give guidance with respect to what spot trading actually means. So people are concerned because they're afraid in, in a bad way or they're interested in seeing what that... Well, you know, concern only because spot trading has never really had, is not the regime of the CFTC to actually regulate other than supervise against manipulation and fraud, right. other than enforcement authority, right? And so there was the concern, and we haven't really heard much since we wrote that comment letter together, Joyce, um, and so they haven't really finalized that interpretation just yet, but the concern is, is that it's a backdoor way to regulate the spot market, I see. right? Because if you're telling me what delivery means, in the leveraged commodity space, which is mm. effectively a spot transaction that was financed, um, what does that say about the spot market when the CFTC has never really had authority to actually regulate? So there was a concern that this could be a backdoor way to actually regulate that space. But isn't that up to Congress? Isn't that just a matter of what powers they have been given through the legislature? Well. In order for the CF, the CFTC certainly doesn't have a statutory mandate to regulate or have any sort right. of supervisory authority over the spot market. Mm -hmm. But when you're evaluating what spot trading actually means, typically in any commodities market, it's been what's market practice. Mm -hmm. So that's why I say it's this concern that it's a backdoor way I to see. actually be regulating it unofficially, if you will. So. In moving from the spot market trading, which are concerns that any stablecoin would need to consider on how it's, it's used, um, how it's structured, and, and how it's traded, mm -hmm. with respect to the stablecoin itself, I, I want to touch on the commodity interest um, considerations. And commodity interest is just a fancy word that the CFTC uses really to refer to swaps and futures and, and other derivative trading. So the definition of swap, which was finalized in under Dodd-Frank in 2010, is very broad. And the definition of swap includes all types of over-the-counter derivatives trading. Um, and again, another confusing term because a swap is also a type of derivative, but the CFTC uses the word swap to refer to all different types of derivatives. Um, in particular, I focus on the fact that the stablecoin derives its value from potentially one asset, various assets, um, you know, a pool of collateral, et cetera. There are these concepts of pegging the stablecoin to an underlying value and how that value is actually determined can, can vary. It could effectively take place on the market where you have various market makers who are buying and selling and participating in the market in order to ensure that um, the stablecoin value remains constant. The concerns arising around how you stabilize the stablecoin and what it's backed by raises a couple of, of points. One is, could it be potentially a derivative? Mm -hmm. given that it's deriving its value. It potentially could fit within the very broad definition of derivative um, of swap 
codified under um, Dodd-Frank in 2010. It potentially could be an option. Does it look like an option? Does it have a strike price, a final price, et cetera? No, it doesn't. Um, but the definition was so broad and it gives so much discretion to the commission that it's certainly a consideration before any launch of a stable coin that you would certainly need to have that discussion with the CFTC to ensure that folks are on board that there is no risk because effectively the CFTC is there to ensure that there is not this risk to the market um, where there is a financial instrument that could have potentially been a derivative um, that was otherwise unregulated. And earlier you mentioned that that there could be stable coins that quote derives its value from some sort of algorithm. Mm -hmm. And right now it seems like you're talking about stable coins that have to do with um, some sort of pegging, that there's some sort of a basket of assets related to it, right? Mm -hmm. What about the ones that are backed by an algorithm? So there's, I think the similar consideration of whether or not they would be considered a derivative applies. Mm -hmm. um, the knock-on consideration that I've been thinking through um, currently that I don't necessarily think exists on the algorithm, but all of this is nascent technology. And so, you know, I, I, we could certainly, I could certainly change my view along the way as the technology continues to develop. But one of the concerns I certainly have mm -hmm. with the asset-backed stable coins, because I've looked at that fairly closely, um, is that some of the stabilizing mechanisms are, is to have a market maker participate and the buying and selling of the stable coin in order to keep the value of the stable coin one-to-one -one of whatever that backed asset is. And so the question arises, when you have somebody coming to the market purposefully to keep, to stabilize the coin, the stable coin, with respect to the underlying asset, mm -hmm. the concern is, are you creating an artificial price? Are you actually letting the market, the supply and demand of the market work? And is there a concern that this could actually be seen as market manipulation? Now, this activity clearly doesn't fit squarely within the concept of, of why we regulate against, mm -hmm. you know, or why we enforce against market manipulation the policy interests behind that don't necessarily fit squarely within a launched project that says we want to keep the value one-to-one -one and this is how we're going to do it. But the concerns around that are, well, what if the stable coin actually doesn't stay exactly to the one-to-one -one valuation? What if there's a band of differential? Does that create arbitrage opportunities? Does that create investment opportunities? Now, that is the reason why then you would want to enforce against this type of manipulation because these are the very concerns that not only the CFTC is concerned about but also the SEC is concerned about. And so with respect to those market maker models that we're starting to see develop, um, we certainly want to think through the issues discuss with the authorities, and come up with a plan that works. Because I think that there should be, and this is just my opinion, I think there should be a path forward 
where we can assuage the manipulation concerns. Maybe there really aren't arbitrage opportunities there. How can we build a stable coin that is allowed to stabilize with market making activity, but doesn't create customer risk? And so that's, that's where I'm currently at in thinking through those issues and concerns. Thank you. That, yeah, that's a very complicated thing to think about, for sure. And you mentioned something earlier, Yvette, that I think ties in nicely to the work that the Sieve does. Um, so earlier you said, you know, because stable coins are a cryptocurrency, and you mentioned that because of that, you fall within the CFTC's jurisdiction, right? So one question that I get often, and I think is a good one, but also a very fundamental one is, so how do I know if this particular crypto is in the CFTC's jurisdiction or is it within the SEC's jurisdiction? Can it be both? And my understanding is that, you know, once you fall into one, you shouldn't really be in the other one. And so if what you're saying is that stable coins are cryptocurrencies and therefore cryptocurrencies are within the CFTC's jurisdiction, then the question um, that I would have to ask is that could stable coins or other cryptocurrency, like when does that come out of the CFTC jurisdiction and into the SEC's jurisdiction, which relates to what you do, Steve, mm -hmm. because you're a broker-dealer and you're a broker-dealer only if you transact in securities, right? Right. right. So before... Yep. Steve takes it away on the SEC side. <laughs> I, I want to pause one second sure. on, is it always just a binary decision? Mm -hmm. Is it just you're either a security or you're either a commodity? And the answer to that is not necessarily always either or. So the CFTC and the SEC play well in the sandbox together. And years ago, unrelated to cryptocurrency, under the Commodity Futures Modernization Act, effectively there was um, something called the hybrid instrument exemption, which said you might have facets of both, and this was really for structured products. You're a warrant, but you also have some sort of effects component built into the warrant. Do I also need to regulate you as a, a swap or a futures contract in addition to being a security? And so that market really needed some clarity. And what folks decided was, if you're mostly going to be a security and subject to securities laws, then the CFTC is generally going to be OK with leaving that instrument with the SEC because there's enough regulatory oversight that they don't need to step in. Mm -hmm. However, if there are enough components where it could be also considered a swap or some sort of futures contract that needs to be regulated, it will also regulate it. So there are considerations and characteristics in history that we have um, where the CFTC and the SEC could jointly regulate. But you're right in saying that for the most part, the SEC will necessarily, will, will, will kind of, it'll be a winner take all situation. If you turn into a security, mm -hmm. the, CFTC isn't going to say just because the crypto asset is supposed to be a commodity, I will also regulate it. It will leave it in the hands of the SEC, I would think. That makes sense. Um, thank you. So from your perspective, Steve, um, as a primarily broker-dealer lawyer, I know you do lots of other things. 
Yeah, for the last four or five years, it's been I've, I've been focusing on the securities regulation generally of this area, yep. and mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> you know, broker dealers certainly my background. But um, you know, the good news about stable coins uh, is that um, they should generally fall outside of the securities regime, and I'm sure everyone listening to this podcast has heard about the Howey test. Um, and, you know, but the Howey test generally says that the, that the investor, the purchaser of the, of the product is purchasing that project, product with an expectation of profit through the efforts of, of another. So, you know, the idea of a, a stable coin is that there wouldn't be a profit. So that, you know, because it's stable, there isn't, it isn't volatility, that um, there could be no expectation that it will increase in value. Expectation is that it will stay stable. So, so maybe we can get even more specific. No expectation of profit for whom? Well, yeah, and that's another piece of it. So, so no expectation of profit from the efforts of others. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, the SEC in their framework that they released, um, you know, earlier uh, is, you know, talks about um, active participants. As being the per, you know the persons involved in the project that are um, uh, the ones sort of driving you know promoting driving the value effectively, and um, you know and so obviously with with blockchain DLT, you know the purpose is in many ways in many you know if it's if it's one of these permissionless systems public system, you know there 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 may not be any AP uh, you know active participant out there certainly that's that seems to be the determination that. Um, the SEC has made with respect to uh, to ether, and so, um, but but you don't even have to get to that piece of it uh, if you don't have an expectation of profit at all. So I think you know generally that you know that's the good news that it should fall outside of it. Now one of the things that we we we've, we've looked at in various structures as 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 uh, mentioned, there's all sorts of different ways of of, of maintaining the sta stability of the coin. And so we've, we've, you know, there's some concerns that, that we have occasionally in different structures as to, as to arbitrage opportunities. Does that potentially lead to an expectation of profit? If there's a, an ability to arbitrage you know, that value uh, you know, that's significant enough to, to cause uh, that sort of concern that, that someone could say, uh, you know, I'll, I want to buy this one because, you know, I think I could play the game of, you know, taking advantage of, of arbitrage opportunities. Mm -hmm. So, I see. yeah, so that's, that's kind of the, the main concern, the securities side, uh, you know, that, that we look at. Otherwise, you're all in a vet's court. So you would have to be arbitraging between uh, the same stable coin, right? Would that, that would be the right, analysis? Right, right. Yeah, so that, so if they're, you know, depending on again how it's um, you know how how the the the, the stabilization mechanism works. Mm -hmm. You know, some of them you know you know the algorithmic, for example, you know it it should incentivize uh, the the stability of the price, but it doesn't necessarily guarantee it. For example, so that there could be points in time where there's there there are discrepancies that that folks could take advantage of. Again, I I think there. Are, very strong arguments that that even those sorts of things uh, shouldn't be, um, you know, securities because there you know, there should not be an expectation of profit and should be able to kind of inoculate your purchasers against that. But that's the concern that you'd want to wrestle with. 
I wanted to layer on one of the interesting issues that arises in, is that there's no good precedent. We, we can draw from a lot of regulatory body on the SEC side and the CFTC side. But what's interesting about stable coins is that the closest corollary you have is when um, countries like Cuba pegging the peso to the dollar. What, what is that? Was that even considered a derivative? What's interesting about the monetary policy or the effects policies and how they've developed is that the CFTC largely hasn't regulated that space, mostly because effects trading has been really a prudential regulatory um, jurisdiction. Are you referring to like when the country of, of Cuba pegs their currency to the dollar? Yeah. Could and, that just be... And yeah. so th there wasn't the forced conversation of considering those risks and whether or not the CFTC really needed to step in in any way, shape, or form, uh, depending on that trading, because effects trading has largely not been regulated when it's physically settled by the CFTC. So what I think is interesting is when folks say, well, but we've never regulated anything that's been pegged. Um, correct. But I think it's slightly different. Effects is regulated in a different way by the CFTC and mostly regulated in the physically settled space um, by prudential regulators, and that has been regulation that has been the division of the playing field if you will is that the cftc was comfortable in many ways and there's a lot of history behind this that for the most part the trading um was properly regulated by prudential regulation because what's really being done mostly by the banks and what they do regulate is retail effects trading so thinking about trying to look to past examples of how we could fit in regulatory precedent is difficult because the effects, the pegging of currencies and the related trading has not been something that we, that the CFTC has necessarily typically stepped into or mm -hmm. been able to develop thought around because it wasn't something that they were regulating at the time, if you will, and or, or was easily tradable by retailers, mm -hmm. if you will. So I think it's, it's a really interesting question that we have to dive into and think through and that certainly the CFTC is thinking through because we don't have good sort of precedent to, to draw from at this point. And what, one final question I have is uh, for you two, do you have any sort of opinion on whether the protocol that the stablecoin uses, whether it's a public one or a more private one, does that factor into any of your analyses at all? From the security side, I don't think so. I think it's it's pretty straightforward uh, that that you're looking at that expectation of profit piece. Um, you know that you know it, it, the, the the private versus public um, does come into play though to a certain extent in the in the you know so the, in the public policy area where you're looking at the fact that the regulation of uh, you know of of investments in the security you know, in the securities world and, and even in the commodities world is really focused on um, intermediaries throughout uh, you know throughout the world really mm -hmm. you know that so so in that and, and of course the purpose there was to 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 create a trusted intermediary and so the all these regulations and statutes are all based on that 
that notion. And of course, in this world, the, the, the idea was to create a trustless system so that you don't have to have an intermediary uh, you know, in the middle that, that is regulated. So there's this sort of antithetical you know, piece where, where the, these regulations um, you know, it's, you know, don't really contemplate something like this that we're public and you, know, and you, don't, and you disintermediate the intermediaries. Great, well thank you very much for your time. Um, this has been a lot of fun. Um, and thank you again for joining us. We, we lost Christian along the way. He had to go, but um, thank you to Christian as well. Thank you. Thanks, Joyce.